2: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
0: Useless Information
1: Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story that you're about to hear, The Little Widow of Harold Square, was first released on May 4th of 2010. It's the first fascinating story of socialite Ida Woods, who later spent decades living as a recluse. And I should add that she was an incredibly rich recluse. And when she died, the fight began for her money. Well, I'll stop there and I'll let you listen to the story to hear exactly how it all unfolded. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of three. My name is Steve Sillman, today's story I've titled, The Little Widow of Herald Square. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you one that a student asked of me last year. And we were discussing center of mass and physics, and the kid wanted to know where the geographic center of the United States was. And I honestly didn't know the answer, so I looked it up real quickly, and uh, we had a discussion about it. So my question for you today is, where is the geographic center of the contiguous United States? You know, the lower 48 states. Where is the center of the United States? Now, you probably don't know the city or the town, but if you can name the state, I'll give you credit for that. So where is the geographic center of the contiguous United States? And like usual, leaving suspense until the end of this podcast.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
1: now for today's story that I've titled The Little Widow of Herald Square. Now today's story begins, but in a lot of ways, ends on March fifth, 1931, when an elderly woman who was residing at the Herald Square Hotel in New York City cautiously cracked open the door to her room and asked the chambermaid to get a doctor because she believed her sister was dying. Now this was a woman that had absolutely no contact with the outside world. She never went out and she never let anyone into her suite. Now, she obtained food by providing the night elevator operator with a list of her necessities and, of course, a few bucks to pay for them. The hotel maids just never entered the room to clean it. The dirty linens were just passed through a narrow opening in the door in exchange for new ones. Now, when the doctor, a guy named Dr. Babcock, entered the room, he was shocked by what he saw. He was witnessing the ultimate pack rat situation. The two rooms of the suite were just filled from floor to floor floor to ceiling with packages, boxes, trunks, barrels, newspapers, magazines, and I can just go on. Just basically anything you can think of. Even taking a seat was nearly impossible because the chairs were just buried in heaps of clothing, blankets, magazines, books, and so on. Now, If this story seems hauntingly familiar, you're probably thinking of the 1947 case of Homer and Langley Collier, which I wrote about in my book, Einstein's Refrigerator, and of course has been covered by many, many other people. In fact, a fictional version of the Collier brothers just came out recently. In this case, the elderly woman that let Dr. Babcock into the hotel room stood, oh, about five feet tall, she had gray hair, she was hunched over, practically deaf, and of course was incredibly feeble. Everything you'd imagine about an old woman, uh, you know, she really fit the classic uh, case. And she was clothed in, you know, really ragged dress. And uh, what was unique was she had a hotel towel pinned around the upper part of her body. Everything about her and her surroundings indicated that she had little money to her name. This woman was dirt poor. But what the doctor didn't know when he entered the room that he, was that he was about to witness the beginning of one of the most sensational news stories of the 1930s. That's because the woman he was talking to was named Ida Mayfield Wood, and Ida moved into the hotel 24 years earlier with her sister Mary Mayfield, who died on that exact day uh, at age of 91, and also she lived there with her daughter Emma, who died in 1928. She would immediately become known worldwide as the Little Widow of Herald Square, and the press would follow her story for more than eight years. So let me give you a little background on Ida Mayfield Wood. It turns out that she was a woman of high society back in the late 1800s, and that's because she was married to a guy named Benjamin Wood, who was the publisher of the New York Daily News. That's not the same Daily News as today. It was a different paper that uh, is now defunct. But at one time, that newspaper had the largest circulation of any newspaper in the United States. Her husband even was elected to Congress twice, and her brother-in-law, Fernando Wood, was once the mayor of New York City. So this is a woman who moved among the most powerful people. In fact, she met Abraham Lincoln and once danced with the Prince of Wales on his visit to New York City in 1860. Definitely not the kind of woman you expect to be living in near-poverty conditions in a small hotel room in New York City. In a lot of ways, Ben and Ida couldn't have been more different. That's because Ben was a big-time gambler, while Ida was the type that saved and stashed away money whenever she could. Now, by 1897, Ben had owed so much money to the creditors that he had to strike a deal with his wife. Ida gave him the money to pay off his gambling debts in exchange for control of the Daily News. Now, many have claimed that this was a business deal, but from what I can figure out, it was probably just done to get the newspaper out of his name and protect it from the creditors. By the time Ben died in 1900, nearly all of his assets had been transferred to Ida's name. But she was not a good editor. Basically, she drove it into the ground and was forced to sell the paper in 1901 for $340,000 to a guy named Frank Munsey. She had one really odd request, and that was she wanted Munsey to pay her in $1,000 bills, which he actually did. Unfortunately, the damage was done, and he could not resurrect the paper, and it was shuttered two years later. The last the world heard of Ida Wood was just prior to the financial panic of 1907. That's when she walked into the Morton Trust and demanded all of her money in cash right then and there. Believe it or not, Ida walked out with a bag with close to a million dollars inside. Think about this. In 1907, walking down the street with a bag with close to a million dollars in it. You wouldn't even do that today. She also sold nearly all of her furniture and the other trappings of being rich. That includes statues, tapestries, paintings, and so on. Now fast forward to the elderly Ida in her Herald Square hotel room. It was very clear that she could no longer take care of herself. This is an elderly woman. She also dropped hints that she had a ton of money in the suite, and they knew that it was not safe there. But those involved could not get her to cooperate in any way, Uh, so there was no way for them to know if the money really was there or not. After two months of getting nowhere, it was finally decided to bring in a relative to help out. But the closest person they could find was a guy named Otis Wood, who was the son of Ida's brother-in-law, the former New York City mayor, Fernando Wood. But it's not like Otis Wood was a close relative to Ida. He had last seen her when he was a young boy, more than 60 years prior. Otis assumed, just like everyone else, that Ida had died long ago. The one thing that Otis was able to determine was that Ida did not have any other children. Therefore, there was no definite heir to her estate when she passed on. She did mention that her husband Ben had other children, but they were all illegitimate and didn't count. Otis was unable to get much more information from her, so it was decided to have the court declare Ida incompetent. As a result, a special guardian named Edward Cocoran was appointed to the case on July 23, 1931, and he was able to make some headway, but not a lot. On one visit, Ida pulled out an old shoebox with 11 stock certificates for 1,020 shares from the Union Pacific Railroad. On another visit, she unpacked a box filled with pots and pans, and at the bottom was $95,000 worth of Union Pacific bonds. And that, and then on another visit, she pulled out an additional $50,000 in Union Pacific bonds. She also made claims, depending on the visit, of having between $285,000 and $385,000 in hard cold cash somewhere in that suite, although she was not willing to reveal where it was among that mess. Clearly, this lady was loaded. But Concorum was unable to convince her to put any of the money or the bonds into the bank, so on September 22, 1931, the court declared Ida incompetent. To be more specific, she was declared a lunatic by the jury, although that seems a bit harsh. Two weeks later, on October 6th, two nurses, a doctor, and two detectives forcibly removed Ida from her suite, and they put her in an identical suite of rooms that was rented right below where she had lived all of those years. It was the only way that anyone could start going through her stuff to see how much money she really had. As the searchers made their way through her pile of junk, they initially didn't find a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, in the first hour, they found a few pieces of jewelry, but not much else. Then suddenly they hit the mother load. Under a pile of newspapers and magazines was an old shoe box that contained $247,000 wrapped in brown wrapping paper. And most of it was in $1,000 and $5,000 bills. The next day, the nurse that was tending to Ida in her new suite downstairs noticed that there was something hitching up Ida's skirt. So as Ida fell asleep, the nurse lifted the skirt to find a canvas and oilskin bag hanging from a string tied around her waist. The nurse immediately opened it to find a pile of $10,000 bills. And believe it or not, there were 50 of them, a total of $500,000. Are you keeping count here? Now, Ida also kept claiming that there was more money. It was stolen, sometimes claiming there was more than a million dollars missing. But where could it be? Could the missing money still be in her possession, but somehow, you know, just misplaced among all that junk? They searched and searched through everything, but they never found that money. Then they got the idea that maybe her sister Mary, who had died the day that she invited them into the suite, maybe she was buried with another similar bag tied around her waist. So they exhumed her body, but there was no money there. Uh, They never did find the second million dollars. And believe it or not, that was not the end of what was found. Weeks after the search for the missing money ended, one of the nurses threw out three tins of moldy crackers. Now, for some reason, she sensed that this was a big mistake and immediately pulled them out of the garbage. And hidden in the bottom of one of the tins was a stunning diamond and emerald necklace that was later sold for $37,000. Now, the search had previously found a number of pieces of diamond and gold jewelry, you know, earrings, necklaces, and pins but the most valuable find of them all was a gold and diamond necklace with 35 diamonds and an aggregate weight of a 118.5 carats. Now, sadly, Ida died on March 12, 1932. That's about a year after her sister Mary had passed away. Her will, which had been written way back in 1889, left everything to her sister and daughter, both of whom were dead and had no offspring. As you can probably imagine, as soon as the papers reported a death, it seemed like every single person with the last name of Wood or Mayfield in the United States was claiming to be the rightful heir to this fortune. But as you'll soon see, none would ever receive a single cent. Instead, it was all left to my family, the Silvermans. Well, okay, maybe not. But it was an incredibly complex task to figure out who should inherit the fortune. It took investigators years to unravel her true identity. Now I'm going to avoid going through it all step by step, but if you are curious to find out more of the details, I suggest you read the fascinating book The Recluse of Herald Square by Joseph A. Cox, who was the lead investigator on the case. The investigators started with the obvious and went through all of Ida Wood's uh, personal belongings when she died, but much of the information that they gathered was either cryptic or inconsistent. They hit roadblock after roadblock following just about every lead that they could come up with, and it took them to places like Boston, California, and a few of the southern states. But with a few other options, they decided to try a different approach. They convinced the publisher of the Boston Globe to run a story describing the case, and they included several photographs from Ida Wood's uh, possessions. Luckily, a woman in Salem, Massachusetts named Catherine Sheehan was the key to solving the great mystery. It turns out that she had in her possession an identical photograph to one of those that had appeared in the newspaper. From there, it was established that Catherine Sheehan's grandmother was a sister of Ida Wood's mom. I think you're really going to like this next little factoid, because by the time the case of Ida's estate got to court in 1937, 1,103 people claimed to be the rightful heirs to her fortune. 616 of them were represented by counsel, so you can be sure this was one crowded courtroom. Yet, by the time the hearing was over one week later, the judge had whittled the field down to just 22 individuals. From the day that Ida Mayfield married Ben Wood, she had always claimed that she was a transplanted Southern Belle, the daughter of a rich Louisiana sugar planter whose lineage could be traced all the way back to nobility. But it turns out that was just a facade. Ida was really born Ellen Walsh in Ireland and probably came to the U.S. at the age of six or seven. Very early on, her name was lengthened to Ida Ellen Walsh in Ireland and then to Ida E. Harvey and then to Ida E. Mayfield before she married Ben Wood and became the Ida Mayfield Wood that died in that hotel suite. It is believed that her family changed their name from the Irish-sounding Walsh to Mayfield when they came to the U.S. to avoid discrimination and to be able to move up through society. Our story ends on March 17, 1939, that's seven years after Idlewood died, when the fortune was split equally among ten relatives, all first cousins once removed. They were all grandchildren of Ida's aunts and uncles, and included Catherine Sheehan. That's the woman who had identified the picture in that Boston Globe article. None had ever met Ida Wood, but I'm quite certain that they appreciated the money. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. And now, a few words from our retro sponsor. Don't wait for that warning signal. Tender gums. Serious dental trouble is often forecast by...
0: Tender gums. If your gums were tender, sore when you brushed your teeth today, that's nature's warning to watch out. It's often the first sign of serious dental trouble. What's more, dental authorities say brushing with toothpastes and powders which contain harsh abrasives only make things worse. You see, toothpastes and powders contain abrasives. That's primarily how they clean. And you can imagine what abrasives can do to gums that are already tender and sore. That's why I urge you, at the first sign of tender gums, switch to teal, the liquid dentifrice. Teal contains no abrasive, so teal does not irritate even tender gums. Teal is good for tender gums. In fact, because teal is a liquid, it reduces the irritating effect of the brush itself, authorities say. Teal lets you massage your gums gently. Once you've used teal, the chances are you'll continue you like the way it makes teeth look sparkling clean, the way it helps sweeten your breath and gives your mouth a refreshed, tingling taste. So when gums hurt, see your dentist and switch to teal. Better yet, don't wait for that warning signal. Get teal now and follow directions on the package. Remember, that's teal, T-E-E-L, teal, the modern liquid dentifrice. And now back to The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley.
1: That commercial for Teal is from the September Fourteenth, 1946 episode of The Life of Riley, one of my favorite old-time radio shows. Now, Teal wasn't a toothpaste or a tooth powder. It was more like a gel, a little bit looser than the gels we have today. It was bright red in color, and it was just thick enough to stay on your toothbrush. Uh, Teal was made by Procter & Gamble and came in a scientific-looking a glass jar, kind of like the Erlenmeyer flask that we use in uh, Science Lab. And there was, of course, a plastic cap that went on the top. The last advertisement I could find for Teal was from June of 1953, and it was on closeout. So you can assume that it was discontinued just prior to that. Want to
2: learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: It's time for like to call news of the weird past. Our first tidbit goes back to September 13, 1941, which reported that 21-year-old Eduardo Morales married his mother-in-law. Now, this wasn't done intentionally. It was simply an error in completing the marriage license. Once the error was discovered, a new marriage certificate was drawn up with his real bride listed. That was 15-year-old Josefina Flores. Talk about a quickie marriage and an annulment. That definitely beats Britney Spears' 55-hour marriage back in 2004. Our next little tidbit goes back to April 30th, 1957, where it's reported that 200 bees escaped from a damaged shipping box in the basement of the New York City General Post Office. Processing of the mail was halted for 15 minutes until the bees were wiped out by an insecticide bomb. A half dozen workers fled for safety during this ordeal, and in case you're curious, the bees were on their way from Mount Vernon in Georgia to Arlington, Massachusetts. Our last little tidbit is from April 29, 1965, which reported that an earthquake shook the apartment of one Howard Pepple, a caretaker at the Juanita Beach Park in the state of Washington. He quickly returned home to assess the damage and found his pet goldfish swimming in an upside-down bowl on the floor. It seems that the bowl fell nearly four feet, flipped in the air, and landed on the linoleum-tiled floor, which formed a tight seal with the bowl. The gravel, the water, and the goldfish was still contained within the bowl. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked where the geographic center of the continental United States was, the lower 48 states. Where is the center of the United States? Now, if you said the state of Kansas, you did get it correct. Now, it's really hard to say for sure where it really is because the exact location depends on the method used to determine it. It's generally accepted to be just outside of Lebanon, Kansas, and this was determined in 1918 by the Coast and Geodetic Survey, and that's before Alaska and Hawaii were made into states, which is why they're not included. And I have to mention that their method is very, very questionable. What they did is they cut a sheet of cardboard into the shape of a U.S. map and then balanced it uh, to see where the center point was. In other words, Lebanon, Kansas is the center of gravity of a piece of cardboard cut to the approximate shape of the United States. Now, if you go there, you'll find a pyramidal uh, stone monument with a brass plaque commemorating the center of the United States. There's also a defunct motel that was built to sleep all of those tourists that really never came, uh, and that sits right behind the monument. There also was a small, in fact, a very small church with four tiny pews right next to the monument, but I just recently read that it was uh, you know, trashed or crushed by a car that ran right through it. And I honestly don't know if it was ever rebuilt or not. Now, if you're curious and include Alaska and Hawaii, the geographic center of the U.S. is 17 miles west of Castle Rock, South Dakota. Or if you want to know where the geographic center of North America as a whole is, that's 15 miles southwest of Rugby, North Dakota. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the Little Widow of Harold Square, as well as our Question of the Day regarding the Geographic Center of the United States, listening to our retro sponsor, Teal Liquid Dentrophist, and of course the news of the weird past tidbits on the guy that married his mother-in-law, the 200 bees that brought the post office to a halt, and of course one lucky goldfish that survived an earthquake. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and of course from your local library. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name, or you can visit my uh, website, that's uselessinformation.org. So you can email me at useless at steve.silverman.name, or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Lastly, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to the podcast. I do read them. I, most of them are positive, a couple of negatives in there, of course. Uh, and I do hear that people want these more often. But unfortunately, I get up at 4 in the morning to run my business, and then I go to work and teach all day, and then I work in my business till 10 o'clock at night. And I also work at the business on the weekends. So I don't have a lot of time to prepare these stories, but I do try to put out one a month and I really do thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye.